This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 401st episode, we have an interview with Susanna Maitment, the Stegosaur and Stegosaurus expert. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Mercury Ceratops. I've also got a fun fact about Stegosaurs. Ooh. Specifically Stegosaurus. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons for keeping our podcast running. And this week, we'd like to thank Ewan. Wyatt, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Myco Raptor, Quinn Pomeroy, Sarasaurus Rex, Jeff, Bradley, and Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire. Thank you so much for being part of our community and for listening to us for the last 401 episodes. I can't believe some people have actually done that. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, we made them. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's true. doesn't feel like it's been that many. So now we're going to get into our interview with Susanna Maidment. But as always, we have an extended version for our patrons. So if you are a patron, that means that you get a custom RSS feed, which includes extended interviews. So you might want to listen to that there. So we're joined this week by Susanna Maidment, who's a principal researcher and curator of the Archosaurs at the Natural History Museum in London. She's published more than 50 scientific papers and is an expert on stegosaurs. Her research includes systematics, anatomy, and taxonomy of ornithischians, the geological context of dinosaur evolution, and dinosaur biodiversity. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I guess up first is how did you get your start working on or with stegosaurs? Um, actually, that's not a super interesting story, to be honest <laughs> with you. It's, so, you know, often when um, you're trying to get into doing a PhD in vertebrate paleontology or, or in dinosaurs, at least in the UK, where I did my PhD, then you tend to apply for projects. So supervisors will will email or will have a, have a list of projects or advertise a list of projects. And you can go around and, you know, apply for these different projects. And there was this really cool project advertised that was on the early evolution of the ornithischian dinosaurs at the University of Cambridge. And I thought that sounded like a really, really cool project. So I thought I'd go and apply for that one. And I got asked to go to interview and I got there at interview. And the supervisor, who was a guy called Dave Norman, who's spent his career working on iguanodontians, some of your listeners might be familiar with him. As soon as I walked in the room, he said, oh, that PhD is not available anymore. Um, I've given it to a, a chap in the year, year above. Richard Butler's got it now. So uh, yeah, you can't do that one. So I sort of was like, oh, <laughs> uh, why, why am I here then? Uh, I don't know. I, okay. Um, he interviewed me anyway. So I was like, all right, Grant. Don't, I had no idea what was going on. I was completely at a loss. And after I got home and after a couple of weeks, he emailed me and said, 
how would you like to work on stegosaurs? That one isn't available, but would you like to do a project on stegosaurs? <laughs> they really need looking at and nobody's working on them and nobody's really done anything with them ever. So, you know, in a modern context. So I think that that, that would be a good project. So I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. You know, I had a, a blow up stegosaur when I was a kid. I had a stegosaur money box and I thought, well, you know, that sounds fab. So I started working. So I fell into it. It was purely accidental. Nice. Yeah, stegosaurs are really good for toys. I had a stegosaur hat that was my favorite when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen, I've seen this really cool thing. People keep sending me a picture of it on Twitter, which is like a tortilla holder. So it's a stegosaur without the, it's like a bowl, but it doesn't have the back plates. Then you stack the tortillas in it like like it's plates. It's really cool. I'm going to get one of those. That's pretty great. It is. I think Sabrina has a little stegosaur purse too. Oh yeah. Oh nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That just lovely shapes they make. It is nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So what was the first stegosaur you worked on in that project or was it just stegosaurs generally? Well, I did. I worked on all of the stegosaurs, really. I mean, I think I saw virtually every specimen that there is worldwide. There's a couple I didn't see in private collections, and there's a couple in China that I couldn't get my hands on. Mm. I did visit China, went to lots of different museums in China, but some of them just were not available at the time to work on. But the first one I worked on, actually, amazingly, I think, there are two stegosaurs known from the UK. And actually, um, the first stegosaur ever found was found in 1875 in Swindon, which is a very unremarkable town in the south of England. And so when I tell British audiences this, they always crack up because the idea that you would find a stegosaur in Swindon is it's totally weird. But anyway, <laughs> it, it was found in Swindon in 1875. And it was, it was described by Richard Owen, who's the founder of the Natural History Museum, where I now work. And so that was the first specimen that I really worked on. Um, And it probably still is my favourite specimen. It's massive. It's also, I think, the biggest stegosaur from anywhere in the world. Mm. So, yeah, bigger than the biggest stegosauruses. So, yeah, but I have worked on them all. I've worked worked on them in China. The African stegosaurs are are mostly in Germany, actually. So I worked on those there. I've worked on the US ones. So all around the world. Awesome. What's the genus of that really big one? Oh, I didn't say. It's called Dacentrurus. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Okay. I should have known. I didn't realize it was bigger than Stegosaurus, though. That's crazy. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> huge. I know. It's also because we don't have a mounted skeleton. We've only got one specimen of it, and we don't have a mounted skeleton. It's actually a slab. It's Part of the skeleton is still in the slab, and it is on display in the Natural History Museum, but people just walk past it because it's kind of unremarkable. You know, and it's in the same hall that we have all these amazing, complete articulated marine reptiles, the ichthyosaurs and the plesiosaurs, and they're all beautiful and spectacular. And then on the other wall, there's just this kind of stegosaur and it's just in this case and nobody notices it. Uh, But it's huge if you go look at it. I don't know if we noticed it noticed Because we sort of glazed through the, there's the dinosaur hall, which is just like chock full of a million dinosaurs. So we we very closely looked around to make sure we weren't missing anything in there. But we I think we pretty quickly went through the marine reptile. We did that that move. (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually at the museum, the interesting thing is I think some of our best, well, actually pretty much all of the best specimens that are on display are not on display in the dinosaur gallery. The Dinosaur Gallery is about 30 or 40 years old now, and we are going to redevelop it fairly soon, actually. But it has, you know, it's of its time. So it has a lot about the paleobiology of dinosaurs in. It's got lots of buttons you can press and levers you can pull, (laughs) um, which I think was, you know, very much the fashion in the 80s for museum displays. It's probably a bit less so now. And uh, it's got lots and lots of casts of complete dinosaurs. But actually, the real material that's on display, some of our really, really good specimens are in other parts of the museum. So. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Like there's the Mantellosaurus, I want to say, like right yeah. when you go in sort of oh, off in a corner yes. as well. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. So I did a project a couple of years ago. So that's actually the holotype of Mantellosaurus. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, really historically significant specimen. And it's one of the most complete dinosaurs ever found in the UK. 
it was inaccessible to researchers for a really long time because it was originally it was actually hanging from the ceiling of the dinosaur. Oh, it was oh, one wow. of those. So yeah, and then they took it down and they put it in the in the nook in the, se- the central hall when they redeveloped that area in a glass box, which is it's a beautiful display item, but it's complete. Again, we can't get into it because it's in a glass box. Mm-hmm. And so a, a couple of years ago, we did a project where we decided to try to 3D scan the whole thing and describe the whole thing. So the public engagement group gave us uh, three days to do all of the work on it. And that included two overnights. So we had to go overnight. We had to take about two hours to get it out of the case. We had to get contractors in to build scaffolding around it. And then we dismounted the whole thing and we finished about three in the morning. Oh my gosh. And then we put it all in the marine invertebrates gallery. And then we, which is kind of has a big open space in the middle. And we 3D scanned it for three days in front of the public. So we <laughs> answered loads of questions about what we were doing. It was, it was great, actually, uh, you know, as a piece of kind of public engagement and science communication tool, because we could explain what we were doing. It was our, our science in action, really. And then at the end of it, we had to put it all back together overnight again with, <laughs> with the contractors building the scaffolding, because we had to shut the case, you see, in the day. So we had to mm. get it all done overnight. So yeah, we were absolutely exhausted by the end of it. But yeah, we have now got a lovely 3D model of the specimen. So we don't need to get it out again. So we can look at it in computationally instead. Awesome. No more overnights. (laughs) No more overnights. Well, till next time. (laughs) I assumed all the ones that were hanging in, because they have those, like you said, those 3D models or maybe casts sort of hanging from the rafters in the dinosaur hall. Are any of the other ones original fossils up there? Or are they all cast at this point? There is a, an original Triceratops skull up there. Mm. I'm also getting that down for one of my PhD students, which is causing <laughs> causing stress for Those some people. Those are heavy. <laughs> they are heavy. Uh, yeah. I'm presumably very dusty right now. Oh, and yeah. I think, I have a feeling there's a sauropodomorph. I forget. I think it might be Massospondylus up there. Oh, that wow. might have some real material in as well, but I'm not totally sure, actually. Um, the gallery is well before my time mm-hmm. at the museum. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my favorite thing was, and I can't remember which ankylosaur it is, sort of on the back, at almost the very end, there's that really beautiful ankylosaur. You can see all the skin and all that stuff going on. Yeah, it's Scolosaurus. It's an amazing specimen. It's, um, yeah, it's from um, Alberta, Lake Cretaceous. And it's, yeah, it's all got all its dermal armor in place. And it's actually, it doesn't have a skull. But the rest of the body is basically completely articulated and you can it's been prepared from both sides. So you can walk around and you can see its limbs kind of crouched underneath it. Um, so it's a really, really cool specimen. Yeah, that thing is awesome. Mm-hmm. That's one that also people miss because compared to one that's prepped out and sort of reconstructed in 3D, you look at it and you're like, what is that? I don't know. And keep, yeah. mo- keep moving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I hope when we when we get to redevelop the gallery, we'll be able to bring some of those specimens to life a little bit more, maybe do a little bit more interpretation around them and and kind of have a little bit more focus on these incredible fossils rather than, yeah, I guess, you know, the, the cast and the, um, yeah. the fake stuff, really. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a timeline for rebuilding the gallery or being worked out? We're hoping to do it in the next 10 years. It's quite a big job, as you can imagine. And the museum has lots of ambitions to redevelop quite a lot in that time. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but hopefully in 10 years time, it will be all shiny and beautiful. <laughs> cool. You mentioned, I think you mentioned that we know that there are some really old stegosaurs relatively, you know, a lot of people's favorite dinosaurs are from the Cretaceous, but stegosaurs are actually from the Jurassic, even though everyone thinks all the dinosaurs are from the Jurassic. Thanks, Jurassic Park. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) So there are some cool stegosaurs in Morocco too. Could you tell us a little bit about maybe a favorite from there or how you started working in Morocco? Yes, this was... Again, I mean, so much of what we do is opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Things kind of fall in your lap and work programs develop from there. But 
a specimen, the specimen was for sale, it was on the commercial market. And I'd actually been sent images of a limb bone from a colleague and they were for sale from a Moroccan fossil dealer who was selling them as sauropod bones. Hmm. And uh, I looked at it and I was like, well, you know, that's definitely a stegosaur. My friend sent it to me because he thought it was a stegosaur as well. And I wasn't working at the Natural History Museum at the time. I was elsewhere and I was thinking, oh, you know, it'd be great if maybe I can get this. I don't know, you know, I'll see. And then about a day later, Paul Barrett, who's the uh, other uh, dinosaur researcher at the Natural History Museum and has worked there for many, many years, he sent me the same pictures and said, I'm going to, I'm going to try and acquire this specimen. Oh. So I was like, yay, great news. So we acquired the specimen and then I started working there shortly afterwards. Oh, good. And then I uh, I wanted to try and track down where it was from because obviously when we buy things, we do acquire lots of material from through purchasing. But when we buy things, we lose the contextual information. So we don't have that information of how the specimen lay in the ground. So was it in an articulated state with the bones separated by different layers? You know, is it a single individual? What environment did it live in? What environment did it die in? And how old is it? And we kind of had lost all of that information. Now, the dealer could tell us where it was from roughly, as in the town or Mm -hmm. the name of the the area. So I started to do some research through literature. And I found that there's long been reports of sauropods in the middle Jurassic of Morocco, in the middle Atlas Mountains, Mm -hmm. um, from a a set of beds called the Couche Rouge, the red beds. You know, these are well-known and I, I started to look through these reports to see, you know, I thought, well, you know, maybe the stegosaurs from these same localities. And then I found a description of a site um, in a pe- really obscure paper from 1992 written in French by some sedimentologists. And they were, I think they were looking at um, palynomorphs or something, micro fossils or something there. And they, um, they just noted the presence of some dinosaur bones there. But this, it seemed to be like the most likely locality where the specimen came from or that broad area. So um, I got in touch with a colleague in Morocco who's a sedimentologist. He was able to put me in touch with another sedimentologist who had done his PhD on the area and who's an expert in the rocks of this area. And so I started working with him, with Driss. I went out to Morocco and met up with Driss and he was able to take me and show me some of the rocks in the area and tell me all about them. And we then went to see the original fossil dealer who said, yeah, I bought it from my cousin. So I went to see his cousin and he said, okay, I'll meet you tomorrow and we'll drive to the town where I got it. So we drove to the town and we met, I guess, the guy who was kind of in charge of the the village. And he said, yes, the site where that specimen's from is about half an hour's drive away, kind of off-road. And so we went down there and we came to um, basically a guy's house, very, very small house. There's no, no access road, just uh, he's got a donkey in a field next door. And, and all of these people, every single time we went, we went and met somebody, everybody gave us tea and <laughs> sat us down and gave us food. And they were, they were so welcoming. It was so lovely. I was having that the tea is so strong. It's so, got so much caffeine in. I was actually having heart palpitations. Like, <laughs> genuinely, I kept, I kept going like, oh, I think I'm not very well. And then somebody said, it's the caffeine. Um, and I was like, oh. Um, after your yeah, fourth they, tea of the oh morning. god yeah really sweet so much sugar so much caffeine oh my god but anyway we went and um yeah and actually we met the guy who actually digs the fossils out and he was really nice he's called moha and he showed us all around the site and showed us where he found some fossils and he showed me all, all of the you know some recent excavations where you know there were kind of holes in the ground where he was digging stuff out i kind of understood what was going on because my french is not very good and Saeed, who uh, was the cousin of the dealer who was accompanying me, he, he didn't speak English, but he speaks French. 
And of course, Mohar speaks Berber. So Mohar was speaking <laughs> Berber to Said, who was then translating it into French for me. And I was then like trying to translate what he was saying with my high school French. <laughs> um, so most of it, I think I got to the bottom of, but nice. not necessarily all of it. But anyway, I was able to go back the next day and, and really record the, the, the sedimentology in a lot of detail and look at the rocks in a lot of detail and understand where these specimens were coming from which was really fab. And then Driss, who wasn't able to come with us that day, he was then able to go back and he's been back several times subsequently and has been able to look at the sedimentology himself, you know, much more experienced set of eyes than I have. So it was really good. So we were able to locate this site. I was talking about the specimen originally though. So that the <laughs> specimen is just, uh, uh, it's an upper arm bone and some backbone, some vertebrae. And that's all we have of it. That's all there is. But it's very clearly a stegosaur happily. Both the upper arm bone and the vertebrae are very, very distinctive in stegosaurs. So we definitely knew they were stegosaurs. And they were very clearly different from other stegosaurs that we have, particularly the vertebrae. They've got lots of characters in that allow us to tell what species it is. Um, so they're very different from the other stegosaurs that we know. And there's actually only two other stegosaurs from Africa, and both are from Southern Africa. So, I mean, we I guess I didn't really expect it to be the same as one of those. Also, it's much older. It's from the Bethonian. It's about 167 million years old. Mm. So, um, yeah, really quite an old, the oldest stegosaur that we have, probably. Yeah, so Driss and I put together a memorandum of understanding so that our two institutions can work together. And one of his students is coming to work with me over the summer, which will be great. I haven't been able to get back to Morocco. The borders are currently closed um, since then. I had planned to go every year, but haven't haven't made it back. So um, hopefully this year we'll get back. We hope to work with Mohar, who digs the actual bones. And what I'd really like to get him to do is rather than digging the bones for the commercial dealers is to dig the bones for us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but rather than dig them up, kind of leave them in the ground where he, so he can find them and, and sort of tell us where they are and then we can go excavate them. And although the, the specimen that we found that we, we named Adra Ticklet, that actually is at the Natural History Museum, all of the rest of the specimens we hope that we find at this site that we'll keep in Morocco. So they're building a, a new facility at the university in Fez to store the materials. So oh, that's awesome. really cool as well. I guess the other one that I really want to talk about is, uh, I might butcher the pronunciation of this, but Spicomelis. Is that how you say it? Yeah, Spicomelis, Spicomelis. Yeah, it doesn't mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, <laughs> that's from the same site. So this, uh, what happened with that one was, same commercial dealer had this specimen for sale. And when I saw it, I thought, oh, it's from the same site. So it's probably part of the stegosaur. I said, right, well, let's acquire it and see whether it's, it's you know, it's part of the same, the same animal. So we acquired it. And when we got it, it was very clear straight off that I didn't know what it was. <laughs> um, it was. It was very, very strange. It was this strange, it looked like a rib, but it had these spikes coming out of it. So the spikes... That's fine. I mean, we, we know that stegosaurs have kind of bizarre armor. We don't have any other stegosaur with spikes like that. But I thought, well, you know, this is a very early stegosaur. We know that stegosaurs, probably the very earliest stegosaurs, things like Hawaiiangosaurus, which is one of the most earliest stegosaurs, actually has more armor, actually has scoots on its back as well as those plates down its spine. And they stegosaurs probably reduced their dermal armor to just those plates during their evolution. Mm. So I thought, well, you know, maybe... Maybe these early stegosaurs have, you know, they have something different. Um, they have more armor or something. So, you know, it's, okay, well, maybe it's a stegosaur. But this thing did look like a rib. And we decided, uh, how are we going to solve this problem and of what this thing is? So we decided to um, do some histological sampling. So we decided to slice up the rib bit and one of the spikes and 
the armour has quite distinctive characteristics histologically. So when you look at it down a microscope, when you look at the bone tissue, it's quite distinctive. And we had some comparisons in the literature and actually within our own collection to compare it with. And I also cut up a rib from a, another ankylosaur that we had in the collection as well. And we had a, a other stegosaur examples to compare it with. So we looked at these and we very clearly quite early on figured that it was, yeah, you know, it, it really definitely was a rib. It definitely really looked like a rib. But more than that, that it had this really unique type of bone that only ankylosaurs have, at least in the Jurassic, only ankylosaurs have. So we have some sauropods that have it in the Cretaceous and we have some other things like etosaurs that have it way back in the Triassic. But in the Jurassic, the only animals that have this sort of texture that were alive were the ankylosaurs. So that was a real <laughs> surprise because... The hitherto oldest ankylosaur was, well, it was only a little bit younger, actually. And it's also from the UK. It's it's from uh, the Colobians. So it's also Middle Jurassic, but kind of really late in the Middle Jurassic. And this is this is older, but we know, but, you know, after that, the, and that's represented by just a little part of a lower jaw. And that's the only thing we have from that ankylosaur. But then we have, we know ankylosaurs much better once we get into the upper Jurassic. And of course, up into the Cretaceous, they're a really kind of important part of ecosystems, at least in North America and Asia. So it was quite surprising to see it in the middle Jurassic, but we would expect it there because we have stegosaurs there and stegosaurs and ankylosaurs are sister taxa. They're most closely related to each other. So if the stegosaurs are there, the ankylosaurs must have been round. Mm. We just haven't found them yet. So, you know, they are, we, we would expect them to be there. So al although it was unexpected, I mean, it was kind of, Unexpected, unexpected, if you see what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Maybe don't. Anyway, uh, so yeah, so it was, it, but it was very, very cool. And it's just totally unlike anything else that we have in the fossil record or indeed alive today, because it has these, their armor, but it, rather than just being embedded in the skin, they're actually fused to the, to the ribs. And if you think about your own rib cage, you've got muscles that run across your ribs and, it, they, you know, they help to, <laughs> you to move your arms forward and stuff. I have no idea how this animal would have walked. I mean, it, where did its arm muscles go? I don't know. It's just bizarre. So, I, yeah, it's genuinely weird and I don't really understand it. So we, we definitely need to go back to find some more of that thing. Oh, I yeah. hope you find all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Yeah, that is the craziest thing. When I saw that too, I had the exact same thought you did, which is like, hey, it looks kind of like a thagomizer or something. You know, it's not, it's spiky. Like, at a, and I saw your name was on it too. And I was like, oh, it must be a stegosaur, obviously. Then it's like, oh no, it's a kylosaur. What is, yeah. what is happening? And for it to come from the same quarry as a stegosaur too, on top of that really makes it weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But we actually, we do have stegosaurs and ankylosaurs living alongside each other in ecosystems throughout the Jurassic. Hmm. So uh, I mentioned this other ankylosaur from the UK, which is Colobian in age, it's called Sarcolestes. And that's actually from a marine rock called the Oxford clay. We also have a stegosaur from there. It's called Lauracatosaurus. And then when we go up into the upper Jurassic, of course, we have Stegosaurus living alongside Mimoropelta and Gargoylosaurus in the Morrison Formation. And also the same in Portugal. We have Dracopelta and Miragaya living alongside each other. So we actually do have in the middle Jurassic Stegosaurs and Ankylosaurs, which appear to have been co-occurring in these, these Jurassic ecosystems. So, hmm. you know, maybe it's not so surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a proposed, this might be getting out of your wheelhouse a little bit, but I know sometimes say with like hadrosaurs, they'll be like, oh, these ones were browsers and these ones were grazers and this is how they live together. Is there any sort of idea about how they niche partitioned between stegosaurs and ankylosaurs? Yeah. I mean, certainly for um, the Cretaceous ankylosaurs, we know that they're 
They have quite a lot of ability to move their jaws. They can rotate their jaws quite a lot. They were clearly processing food in their mouth. They have wear facets on their teeth. We don't really see that in stegosaurs. Now, of course, when we go back to the Jurassic ankylosaurs, they're so fragmentary. Well, at least the middle Jurassic ones, we really don't have that information. And I'm not sure that work has really been carried out on things like Mymora pelter and Gargoyleosaurus from the Morrison. So part of the problem with that is that we don't really have the specimens. And do you know, there's actually only three stegosaurs in the world for which we have complete skulls. Mm. So it, it makes things quite difficult because we, we don't have teeth, we don't have heads for a lot of these animals. But there is certainly, based on later ankylosaurs, this evidence that they were doing a lot more food processing in their mouths, whereas stegosaurs were probably cropping with a with a horny beak or something like that. So I think they probably must have been niche partitioning in some way. Cool. Yeah, that's always weird when you see things that superficially look similar, but then you look a little closer and you can see the differences. Mm-hmm. I guess going to uh, Stegosaurus specifically, I know there's like, I know you've, you've done a lot of work on the skeleton and body mass and all kinds of stuff around Stegosaurus. So like what made it so special or different from other types of Stegosaurus? Stegosaurus actually is quite unusual. Although it's our sort of, we think of it as our kind of archetypical stegosaur, if you like, you know, it's, it's the thing that everybody knows. It's actually a little bit weird compared to other stegosaurs. Its plates are quite weird. So it has these very, very, very large, very, very, very flat, they're very, very thin plates. And most stegosaurs don't have that. Most stegosaurs plates are much smaller. Hmm. So they're probably only 15 to 20 centimetres in size. Whereas Stegosaurus's plates, I mean, I've seen a Stegosaurus plate that's a meter in size. <laughs> so, you know, they're very large, some of these things. And many Stegosaurs actually have quite spine-like armor. So they're sort of spines that have then got elongated edges to give them a kind of triangular shape. We think, although we don't know because we don't have, they're not that well preserved, that most, pretty much most other Stegosaurs had paired dermal armor down their back. So the plates were in pairs, whereas in Stegosaurus, they appear to have been offset from each other. So they're not, the plates aren't paired down the back. And quite a lot of other Stegosaurs also have spines. They have other armor as well as the, the row of plates down their back. So they have spines on their shoulders. And we don't see that in Stegosaurus either. So Stegosaurus is, it's a little bit weird. It also has, it has quite short forelimbs relative to its hind limbs. And yeah, it is a little bit unusual actually. <laughs> it's always funny when the one that's the namesake for like the whole group is sort of an outlier. <laughs> yeah. Is it, you know, the really famous stegosaur at the British... Sophie? Yeah, Sophie. <laughs> Sophie is very famous. We had a listener ask, should it have a different place in the museum or do you like where it is in the, I think it's called the Hall of Earth History or something like that? Yeah, well, it's it's one of our entrances. So there's two entrances to the museum. And so the visitors that come in that entrance, that's the first thing they see. So I quite like that. I think, okay. <laughs> I think that's quite cool. And I, I also, um, I really like the mount. It's a really dynamic kind of mount. I don't know whether it will be there forever. I suspect when we re do redevelop the dinosaur gallery, it might, it might well get moved, but I don't know yet. But no, I quite like where it is at the moment because people sort of walk in and they walk up the steps and it's it's there. Um, facing them and it's really beautifully lit up and yeah I think it's great I think it's a great display and I love the fact that we have all of the real material on display with the exception of the skull but Sophie's a, it's a really 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 significant and important specimen it's the the most complete stegosaurus ever found hmm. so there were just really basic things about stegosaurs that we didn't know until we had Sophie so for example we didn't know how many bones how many backbones there were we didn't know how many vertebrae there were in the back we didn't know how long the tail was we didn't know how many vertebrae there were in the tail because we didn't have a complete articulated skeleton so you know again stegosaurus is this incredibly iconic dinosaur that every 7 year old knows but actually how much we know about it 
from a scientific point of view, isn't as much as you might expect given its popular, you know, <laughs> appeal, its iconic status. So yeah, we didn't know how many backbones there were. We didn't know how many plates and spines there were along the back. We only had two other complete skulls, but in both of those specimens, the skulls are fused into a single block. So all the bones are fused together. Mm. So whilst that's nice, um, they're both quite squished as well. But while that's quite nice to be able to kind of, you know, hold the skull and go, well, look, it's a stegosaur head. From an anatomical point of view, it, there's not that much information you can get out of it because all of the, you know, the, the jaws are fused shut in both of them. So you can't see the palate. You know, there's lots of details of the brain case that are missing. We can't see the shapes of individual bones and understand how the bones kind of join together. And one of the great things about Sophie is that it has a complete disarticulated skull. So all of the skull bones were separate. So that allowed us really for the first time to understand what Stegosaurus's skull looked like. So Stegosaurus, when you look back at kind of old reconstructions, they have these rather long, low snouted skulls. Mm -hmm. And when we got Sophie, my colleague CT scanned it and um, then digitally reconstructed the skull and and built the skull, an undistorted Stegosaurus skull for the first time. And it turns out that kind of long, low snout is just crushing of those specimens. Mm. And actually they just had, they had a much more kind of basal ornithischian type skull Mm. than than we had realised before. So there's loads of just really basic stuff that we didn't know. And so we decided when we first got the specimen that we were going to write a monograph on Stegosaurus and just describe its anatomy because that hadn't been done for a hundred years. Wow. <laughs> so we published the paper in 2015 and, and the last time Stegosaurus was described was in 1915. <laughs> so um, it's amazing, you know, and in the light of all of that knowledge and all of those new discoveries um, that have been found since 1915 and, you know, Stegosaurus hadn't been described. So yeah, there's a lot, a lot to know. And of course, once you have a really complete skeleton, you can do all sorts of cool stuff with it. We had a, a postdoc work on the project. So again, the specimen was, uh, it was on the commercial market. We we bought it and we can't usually afford to buy complete articulated skeletons. Yeah. So it was, it was thanks to a very large private donation, which was um, extremely generous. But not only did that pay for the skeleton, but it also paid for the scientific study of it. So a postdoc was employed by the museum for a year to study the specimen, which was fantastic. And um, the postdoc, Charlotte, she took... Uh, over 20,000 individual photographs of the bones wow. and made yeah made photograph photogrammetric models of all of the elements so we have this really rather beautiful 3D model as well which is fabulous because again the specimens on display but i can share that model with researchers all around the world who who want to use it but it, it allowed us then to do really cool things like look at the body mass of stegosaurus um computationally properly it allowed us to look at walking and limb bone motions the skull, uh, my colleagues did some really cool uh, bite force work on the mm. skull and look at how much, uh, what Stegosaurus's bite force was. I still would really, really, what I really want to do is test this idea that Stegosaurus was using its plates as a, as radiators, as, mm-hmm. thermo, as a thermoregulatory device. Um, so what I'd really like to do is take, we've got the 3D array of plates digitally, and I want to kind of uh, use computational fluid dynamics to examine the heat loss across those the, the plates. We did have a go at it, but it didn't work very well. But I think that was a while ago. And I think we can probably do a bit better than that now. I think, you know, computationally, we've moved on a little bit. So that's something that I'm still kind of, you know, hankering after doing the specimen. Yeah. There's got to be some reason for those plates (laughs) to be so large. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is that one of your favorite reasons or maybe preferred hypotheses for the plates is the thermoregulation? Yeah, I don't think it's why they evolved, probably. 
I suspect that they were probably, you know, originally that certainly in basal ornithischian, in basal diryophorans, and then probably in basal stegosaurs, they probably were armor genuinely, you know, they were there to protect the back of the animal from predators. Because in these others, as I have already explained, some of the, the plates are quite a different shape. They're quite small. They're not particularly plate-like. They're much more spike-like. Whereas in stegosaurus, they're just greatly hypertrophied. So I suspect that thermoregulation wasn't the reason they evolved, but potentially in Stegosaurus, I can see that they might have been co-opted for that sort of purpose. And, you know, I think if you have something that large on your back, <laughs> I mean, you're going to lose heat out of it. You, you just are, aren't you? We know that crocodilian scoots, even those tiny little, tiny little scoots compared to Stegosaurus, at least that crocs have in their skins, they, they actually lose heat out of those. So, you know, thyrophans must have lost heat out of their plates to some extent. So yeah, I think it's totally plausible. And I also, you know, I don't think Stegosaurus's plates would have been much good as actual defensive structures because they are, they're very, very thin. And yeah, they would have been covered in some sort of horny kind of keratinous covering, but they were still very thin. And I think, you know, if you're Allosaurus living alongside Stegosaurus in the Morrison formation, it'd be like eating a pack of Doritos or something, wouldn't it? Just <laughs> chomping through these plates. I, don't, I just don't think, it just doesn't strike me as a particularly useful form of armour. I think one of the things that I have seen though, is that lots of the different Stegosaurs have different shape plates. So I do wonder whether there's some sort of interspecific or intraspecific kind of signalling display thing going on there as well. And unfortunately, we just don't have the specimens to be able to really test those ideas right now. Yeah. If the plates weren't useful for defense, do you think the thagomizer, like in terms of a Allosaurus trying to eat a Stegosaurus, what would be its best defense? Because it's not going to be able to run away from Allosaurus. No. <laughs> there was no running going on in Stegosaurus's <laughs> life, is it? Yeah, I think, um, I think, yeah, I think the tail was probably a genuine weapon. And there has been some work that's been done on, you know, how, what was the impact at the end? What was the force that uh, a tail spike would have impacted into an Allosaurus's leg or something like that? And yeah, it's been shown that it could have kind of crushed bone even or impacted into the bone. And there is a really cool fossil that is an Allosaurus back vertebra. And it's it's got a pathology in it where you've got a kind of hole in one of the processes that comes off the vertebrae and somebody has stuck a stegosaurus spike in and it kind of fits perfectly <laughs> in this hole. So potentially it could be that, you know, this allosaur had a bit of stegosaurus tail spike broken off in its back um, oh. and the bone actually healed around this spike. So yeah, I think we have some circumstantial evidence perhaps <laughs> that stegosaurus was actually doing that to allosaurus. That only needs to happen once to that Allosaurus, and it's probably not going after any more Stegosaurus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go after one of those rubbish Camptosauruses or something yeah. after that. Yeah. Something without huge spikes. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about this, but how a Stegosaurus has glide symmetry of the plates, I guess, meaning that they're alternating, you know, rather than yeah. paired. Do you have any guess about why they might have had that weird non-bilateral symmetry going on? Um, not really, no. It's an excellent <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely is a thing. It definitely is, is a feature. We have a couple of fossils preserved where they're definitely offset from each other and the plates are not pairs. We definitely know that. So yeah, they are definitely offset from each other. Why? I don't know. I mean, if it is a, a thermoregulatory structure, then maybe they work better when they're offset from each other. Maybe that's mm. something I could test in my computational fluid dynamics, whether they work better when they're offset from each other. It could be a display thing. As I say, I think these things were potentially signaling to each other intraspecifically or, or whatever using plates. But no, I, actually, I don't know. I have no idea. 
It's not a very good answer, sorry. <laughs> I mean, like almost every animal is, or every vertebrate at least, is bilaterally symmetric with a few exceptions. It's just so strange that that one isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is very weird, actually, yeah. Just add to the list of what makes Stegosaurus so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, then for our listeners, if they want to keep up with what you're working on or, you know, the maybe upcoming renovations of the museum or really anything else that you want to point to online, is there anywhere you'd like to send people? Yeah, you can check out the Natural History Museum's dinosaur website. It has all our news stories on. It has loads of updates and kind of stories about recent research and things that's going on, not just from us, but from other people as well. It Also, if you have kids, it's got loads of quizzes and, you know, games and puzzles and things to do with dinosaurs. And that's nhm.ac.uk forward slash discover forward slash dinosaurs. And you can follow me on Twitter at Tweetysaurus. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> that's a fantastic handle too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got in there early on Twitter to get that one, you see. So. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks again, Susanna. It has been a long time coming, this interview. And we really appreciate you setting us straight on all the Stegosaurus questions that we had. Oh, yeah. Stegosaurus are so cool. And shortly, we're going to get on to our Dinosaur of the Day Mercury Ceratops. But first, we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Mercury Ceratops, which was a request from Crow via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. 
It was a chasmosaurine ceratopsid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Alberta, Canada, in the Dinosaur Park Formation, and in Montana in the U.S. in the Judith River Formation. It looked like other ceratopsians. It walked on all fours. It had a large frill. It also had brow horns and a beak. It's estimated to be around the same size as Chasmosaurus. That's about 14 to 15.7 feet or 4.3 to 4.8 meters long. Yeah, so like medium-sized? Yeah. And as a chasmosaurine, it probably had two long brow horns and a short nose horn. Like triceratops. Yes. As a quick reminder, there's two main groups of ceratopsians. There's chasmosaurs. Those are the ones that generally had the long neck frills, the short nasal horns, and the large brow horns. And centrosaurians. Those are the ones that generally had short frills, large nasal horns, and short brow horns. I always think of Styracosaurus as the prototypical centrosaurine with the mm. big decorative frill and then Triceratops as the chasmosaurus. Those are some good examples. That's how I remember it. So this is a Triceratops-like one, not a Styracosaurus-like one. But there are weird crossovers. that that's, It was good that you said generally because it's not always the case. Just like everything with dinosaurs. Yep, it gets messy sometimes. <laughs> Mercury Ceratops was herbivorous. It probably had a parrot-like beak. And it helps to show more variation in ceratopsid frills and skull ornamentation. That's because it had a unique frill with wing-like protrusions on the sides of the frill. They've been described as a butterfly-shaped frill or neck shield. Oh, I have seen that. As soon as you describe that, I can imagine what it looks like. Well, they've also been described as like the decorative fins on classic 1950s cars. <laughs> That's interesting. The squamosal skull bones were hatchet-shaped, and they stuck out from the side. And this skull ornamentation was probably used to identify each other and attract mates, in addition to maybe defense. The type species is Mercuriceratops gemini. It's such a astrological type name. It is. The genus name means Mercury horned face. It refers to the Roman god Mercury because of the wing-like ornamentation on its head being similar to the winged helmet. Oh, that's clever. Yeah. And the species name refers to the constellation Gemini. They're named for the twins Castor and Pollux because two very similar Mercury Ceratops specimens were found, one in Canada and one in the U.S. It was described in 2014 by Michael Ryan and others. And the fossils were first found in 2007 by tribal paleontology. They found the frill elements. So those two specimens that were found were nearly identical, the one in Canada and the one in the U.S., they found the squamosals from the right side of the skull. And that helps to show that these fossils were probably not distorted or crushed or that it wasn't a pathology. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's always the question, right? When you find a weird dinosaur, like, was it weird or did it just have some <laughs> issue or did it get distorted or what happened here? And this one was weird. Yeah, when you find two, that is excellent evidence. These specimens were found about 236 miles or 380 kilometers from each other just fairly far apart. Mm -hmm. The fossils in Montana were collected on private land and acquired by the Royal Ontario Museum, and the fossils from Canada were collected by Susan Owen Kagan from the University of Alberta. So now they're both in Canada. Mm -hmm. The holotype of Mercury Ceratops may be a subadult, and then the referred specimen is a little bit larger, so it might be older. Mercury Ceratops is part of the Southern Alberta Dinosaur Project, which focuses on dinosaurs from the late Cretaceous found in Alberta and Montana. So a perfect fit. 
Mercury Ceratops represents the oldest known chasmosaurine from Canada found at the time and, quote, the first pre-Mastrictian ceratopsid to have been collected on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border. The fun little tidbit. Mm-hmm. Now, other animals that lived around the same time and place as Mercury Ceratops include ceratopsids, amphibians, fish, crocodilians, and lizards. And our fun fact of the day is that Stegosaurus was the second Ornithischian ever animated. Is that after Gertie? Gertie is not an Ornithischian. Oh, you're right. Gertie's <laughs> a sauropod. I should not have said that. <laughs> a type of sauropod. <laughs> well, you are right. There, there, in that there have been tons of sauropods animated, and I think there were probably three or four sauropods animated before Stegosaurus. So you're on the right track. But... Can you guess what the first ever Ornithischian animated was? Triceratops. Yep, you got it. <laughs> Once I remembered what an Ornithischian was, <laughs> I got there. Yeah. A lot of times people do summarize Ornithischians as like the plant-eating dinosaurs, which is an oversimplification because they weren't all plant eaters. And on top of that, sauropods mostly ate plants mm -hmm. and... Clearly. Also, I've got a bias, so I'm always just thinking of the sauropods. Yeah, that's true. So the first Triceratops animated was the Triceratops in the Ghost of Slumber Mountain from Ooh. 1918. I have seen this animation before, but I hadn't watched the whole video. I watched it just preparing for this fun fact when I was fact checking myself. It was animated by Willis O'Brien. Of course. Who did a lot of these early animations. And it's like a guy dreaming, and he dreams a T-Rex fighting a Triceratops, and then he wakes up and he thinks he needs to be like running away. It's a silent <laughs> film. So he's like, gets up all freaked out, and somebody next to him is like, calm down, you were just dreaming. And there's like a whole story about somebody following a ghost. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. I think part of the film, it was originally 40 or 50 minutes long, and there's only like 20 minutes of it remaining. So I think part of it has been lost because... Old film is very flammable and also deteriorates, so it's over 100 years old. You can see why we don't have the whole thing anymore. That's too bad. A lot of work probably went into it. Yeah, but I think it has the whole part that includes dinosaurs, oh, okay, because I good. think that would be in the dream part. So I think we got the best part. Then seven years later, in 1925, O'Brien animated The Lost World. It included Triceratops fighting T-Rex slash Allosaurus again. But it also included Edmontosaurus and Stegosaurus, which are two more Ornithischians. Mm -hmm. So Edmontosaurus and Stegosaurus are basically tied for second in the animated Ornithischian realm. But I really wanted to parse out which one came first. And in my digging, I found that three years before The Lost World was released, O'Brien's animation of Stegosaurus had already been showed to the public. This is a crazy story. <laughs> okay. So, so Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote the novel, The Lost World, which was released in 1912. Mm -hmm. And by this point, three years before The Lost World movie came out, O'Brien was already working on animating it. And since Arthur Conan Doyle also appeared at the beginning of the film, he was obviously pretty involved in the process and must have known Willis O'Brien. Actually, you can see the new version of Arthur Conan Doyle at the beginning of the film. It was lost for a while. We actually saw it a few years ago. Remember at the silent film festival? Mm-hmm. Which is pretty cool. It's almost, it reminds me a little bit of like Princess Bride or something where the guy's reading a book and then it sort of like cuts back. But Arthur Conan Doyle was also friends with Harry Houdini. Is a whole other story. Mm -hmm. But Arthur Conan Doyle reportedly showed a reel of Willis O'Brien's animations 
including multiple dinosaurs, to a meeting of the Society of American Magicians, and this was in 1922. Hmm. So he presented them as psychic and imaginative creations. Okay. But wouldn't answer any questions about their origin. So the obvious implication was that the 1912 novel was actually based on reality. Apparently, people didn't know that there was a movie being created about it yet and weren't familiar with Willis O'Brien's animation style because a lot of them believed that this was a real thing or that it could have been a real thing, like Hmm. a real recording of actual animals. The exact film clip that was shared isn't clear to me. I couldn't find any reference to, you know, here's the clip or any video of it. Some places claim that it was Triceratops, Allosaurus, and Stegosaurus, but I couldn't validate that anywhere. The only place I could find that really went into detail about it was the New York Times article from 1922, which is really fantastic. So (laughs) what they said was, quote, Monsters of several million years ago, mostly of the dinosaur species, made love and killed each other in Sir Arthur's pictures. Prehistoric brutes that resemble rhinoceros magnified many times, equipped with enormous horns that pointed forward like those of the unicorn, drove dinosaurs away from feasts on one another. One monster, like a horned toad of monumental proportions, presented an impenetrable surface of armor plate to attacking reptiles and moved along in safety. (laughs) Wow. Is a very fantastical description of dinosaurs. Yes. So presumably the enormous unicorn was a triceratops and the monumental horned toad was a stegosaurus Mm -hmm. because in the final version of The Lost World, you see a triceratops fight a T-Rex. So that must be what they were talking about there. And there is a stegosaurus, which basically gets left alone, (laughs) which is basically the description. There wasn't any mention of Edmontosaurus. It could have been in the mix, but it didn't get included in the only description I could find. The New York Times also said, quote, if fakes, they were masterpieces. (laughs) Which, Willis O'Brien was a fantastic animator, but from a modern perspective, it's pretty hilarious that anyone thought that these things were real. Yeah, but if you think about people back in the day and film is fairly new as a medium. It's true, yeah. I think that's probably how it always goes. Mm -hmm. If you go 100 years into the future, they would probably create things that we would say are real and they'd be like, well, obviously that's fake. Yeah, I could see that happening with VR. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's my evidence that Stegosaurus was the second Ornithischian ever animated, which is pretty cool because we have so few fossils of it. It's just such a really interesting animal with those crazy plates. Mm -hmm. How could you not want to animate it and see what it would have looked like in real life? It's one of the first dinosaurs I drew as a kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's really special. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. If you haven't done so yet, consider joining our dinosaur enthusiast community at patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time.